Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. I've been looking forward to this for a long time because, you know, the history of Rod Guilfrey is the history of the L.A. Opera. I think all of you know this, so... A lot of you in this room have been with us for a long time, but th for those of you who don't know, uh, Rod christened the LA Opera in the uh, role of the Herald in Otello. When he comes back to us in February to sing the role of Eurydice's father in our world premiere of Eurydice, uh, that's his 30th uh, main stage uh, role with the company. 31? Oh. My fact checker says 31. He's probably right. I don't know. Well, and what's, what's really interesting to me is that he's been with us continuously in, in every era of the company. And one of the things I find really interesting about Rod's career is it's taken uh, slightly... It's not gone on the path in which you would have expected in the early years. And really gratifying for me is that he's actually... His last two appearances with the company have been part of LA Opera Off Grand... And actually, so I want to start in the present and go back to the past. I believe that the first role that was expressly written for you was Stanley Kowalski in Andre Previn's Streetcar Named Desire. That's true? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And that was in 1997. And since then, um, you've had 12 roles uh, written for you, expressly for you since then. Actually, I've had 12. I said 12. I know you did. Yeah. Just... That's how this is going to go tonight. Math. Set the yeah. tone. So since your last two appearances with us, and now your next one will be in new music, Matthew O'Coin's Crossing, written for you, uh, David Lang's The Loser, written for you, and now Eurydice's Father, written for you, I want to talk about this phase of your career in which you've become a kind of muse to some of the most uh, interesting and successful um, composers working today, and how that happened and what that is like for you as an artist. I don't know. I think when I, when I did uh, Streetcar Named Desire, Andre Previn, back in um, 1998, I think it was, in San Francisco, uh, it, was, it was very successful. The opera was successful. And so what do you do when you're going to write a new piece and you have a role for a baritone and you want to make sure that you know, someone does it to your satisfaction? You look and see who's been doing stuff. And so it probably... I'm just, I'm just, this is my own theory, you know, I figured that I sort of stamped myself as a, a world premiere, new music, modern opera performer, and so that sort of um, attracted other composers to do the same thing. There, there's a bigger artistic risk in doing that, right, because maybe what is written for you isn't interesting to you, and then um, from a career and economic perspective, there's the chance that you have to do all of this work, learn all of this music, and you may nev never do it again. It's not a chance. It's almost assured you'll never <laughs> do it again. Uh, seriously, most of these pieces I've done have never been done again. You take your chances. You know, it's like um, you can't be risk averse and and do modern music. You've got to take your chances. And so I can sort of tell now when when I'm sent a score if it's going to be good or not. I, I've sort of developed a kind of a, 
um, a way of assessing these things to, to sort of determine in advance if it has a chance. And or I'm sort of getting a little ahead of our discussion here, but I'm really excited about Eurydice because uh, it's, I think it's going to be fantastic. I mean, I think this is going to be a real winner. So we can talk more about why I think that, whatever, I know, but I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. But I do have some experience in this now. This, being, this will be my 13th new opera, and I think it's going to be fantastic. Tell us why. Well, <laughs> since you asked, no, I just got, I got the score last week. And, and Matt O'Quinn... So here's, here's the risk, right? Because you said you learn this music and then it's never done again. And then people in the audience are thinking, oh, no, here we go again. I know. That's always the risk. You, don't, you, know, you, really, you really don't know. I remember doing, I remember doing a, perform, uh, a production here of Cosi Fantute. Seems like a shoe-in. Everybody knows Cosi. It has a lot of admirers. And we had, in the rehearsal process, we had so much fun. We were constantly laughing, cracking up. Not even able to continue rehearsal. We were laughing so much. And when it went on stage, it was a dud. We, we were the only ones laughing. <laughs> Things like that can happen. You think sometimes you've got the greatest things in sliced bread, and then you put it in front of a public, and they're like, maybe not so much. Yeah, this is not where I wanted to go with this. This is, this is. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you why I think Eurydice is going to be great. So, first of all, Matt, Matt was talking about Sarah Rule, who wrote the play that is based on it, wrote the libretto for the opera. And he could not express it. Matt's pretty, pretty good with words. He could not express how good the play was He's, and, he, and how great she is. And I thought, okay, well, he really likes her work. He really likes her work. I, I, got the, I got the opera, and I read through it. I couldn't not even read through it in one go. I had to stop about five times because I was so emotionally affected by the story, her story, her telling of this Orpheus Eurydice story and my role in it as Eurydice's father, who's not normally a part of that story. Um, and... Although I didn't hear a note of it, I can tell from the way Matt has set these scenes that they're going to be really, really compelling. And when I finally got to the ending, which I won't reveal, I don't know, should I reveal? In operas, you always know the ending before you go, right? I'm just going to save this one for you so you don't know. The ending is heartbreaking. It's like, I think it's worse than the original story. I mean, better. In that respect, better. More heartbreaking than the original story. I just saw, I just saw Hades Town on Broadway. Anybody see Hades Town? I loved it. Did you guys like it? It was one of the producers is a friend of ours, uh, Dale Franz, and Dale's not here tonight, is she? What? Yeah, but you know, you, she's, and Dale and I sang here at the LA Opera years and years ago. Uh, Magic Flute, she was, she was Papagena, I was Papageno. And her husband, Don Franson, is a really well-known, very successful lawyer. And they've been friends of ours for a long time. Anyway, so I was attracted to the piece because Dale was one of the producers. But I thought the piece was fantastic. A really great telling of the, of the Orpheus in the underworld, the Orpheus Eurydice story. Um, and I think this telling of it is more compelling than, than what I saw on Broadway. So this is your, this is your second uh, project with Matthew O'Coin, our artist in residence. How did the first one happen? Because that didn't happen under our aegis. Right. So I was at the Met uh, 
was I doing at the time? I think I was involved with the Merry Widow. Uh, maybe no, with the Tempest. Uh, Thomas Addis, the Tempest, which was being done there, and I had done a new production that then went to the Met. And uh, and Matt O'Coin was a rehearsal pianist and coach on the, an assistant conductor on the piece, and so I uh, I sang the role of Prospero when we did it in in Quebec City. This uh, this uh, Robert Robert Lepage right Robert Lepage production, but at the Met I was covering the role of Prospero. The wonderful Simon Keenly side was uh, was singing it. So I spent a lot of time with Matt because he was playing piano for the cover rehearsals and conducting them. And as we were going along, he said, you know, I've got to, I mean, at that time especially, he looked like he was about 12 years old. Now he looks like he's 14, but he's, <laughs> he, you know, he was looked really young and he's, he's just kind of a small man. And he said, hey, I've got, this, I've got this piece I'm working on. Would you like to hear some of it? And I'm like, oh no, this guy's a composer. Oh. <laughs> they, they come out of the woodwork, they're all over the place. And, and so he sat down, he played this thing called Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, which became like Walt Whitman's big aria in, in the opera when it was finally finished. And it was really fantastic. And I was like, Matt, this is really great. And he was like, oh, you know, I'm thinking of making an opera out of it. And so then I could tell that he had strong coattails. I wanted to hold on to those coattails because I knew he would become something. And so as he developed it, he would send me scenes that he had written, and then we had several workshops, which I insisted on being a part of. And uh, yeah, it sort of developed like that. And, and then, you know, he found people who would back it and sponsor it and, and, and commission it, and then a place to do it. And we premiered it in, in Boston uh, first, and then went on to um, BAM in Brooklyn, and then eventually brought it here in concert two seasons ago, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's how it worked. And, and Matt, I, you know, when, when, when new composers, when they say to me, I'd like to write something for you, can you give me, an, you know, what is your tessitura? What, where do you like to sing? What's your high note? What's your low note? How should I compose for your voice? I send them excerpts from Crossing because I say, this is for my voice. Matt O'Coin wrote this for me, and it's perfect. It takes advantage of everything I can do, and it's still a little challenging, and so this is a great example. So Matt really knows my voice well. It's the challenging part that I'm really interested in because I think, you know, you have set before yourself some of the most incredible challenges in the last 10 years. I think of the Saint-Francois, I think about Crossing, which, you know, Rod made it look extremely easy, but that piece is incredibly musically complicated. I think, you know, I sort of fell to my knees every night with, with the David Lang loser because I just thought, this is an act of, of extraordinary courage on the part of an artist, for those of how, how many of you are heard uh, the loser, yeah. So, so you you for those of you who didn't, I mean the the idea that that Rod in an incredibly uh, both physically and aesthetically exposed way sang for an hour this incredible uh, stream of consciousness monologue. It was an act of of absolute courage. Are you specifically seeking out uh, projects that are are um, nearly impossible? Well. I mean, is it? I mean, I guess I think about this a lot, and I, I've said this to some people in the room, so forgive me. But I think about, um, you know, Renee was just here. You guys uh, came to see Light in the Piazza, and I think, you know, Renee Fleming's at a point in her career in which she's done everything she could possibly do, and it's totally possible for her to just coast. 
and yet she keeps putting challenges before herself, which are theoretically on paper, they're asking things of her as an artist, which are potentially, uh, she puts herself in the path of potential failure. And I have unbelievable admiration for that. And you know, my admiration is the same for you, which is just, you're not, you're hardly coasting, you know? You, and almost every project that you've done has has uh, seemed more and more kind of insurmountable in its way, and yet you've triumphed. I've I've fallen on my face a few times, but that's how you learn what your limits are. And I I really believe we can always do a little more than we think we can. And so when I have a project like when David Lang approached me about this this thing for the loser, and he said this is my this is my vision that you will be on a platform or either either hanging from the ceiling or you'll be in a very small stage that's just completely like floating in the air. And I think it'll be about an hour. And I said, okay. He said, there will be no place to sit. And I'd like you to be dressed in a tuxedo. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, okay. When I started to get an idea of the scope of it, I said, David, I've got a great idea. How about we have a little tiny table and I'll have a, what looks like a gin martini on the table, but it'll just be water. And I can get a drink if I want to. I'm gonna be wearing a tuxedo, my hair's slicked back, it looks perfect for the era. He's like, no, <laughs> that's not really what I had in mind. I'm like, David, is this possible to actually stand there and sing your music for an hour? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? I said, well, I don't know. He's like, let's try it. And so, you know, we did. And, it, and this is the thing about a piece like that. You don't go up on that stage and say to yourself, okay, now I'm gonna stand here and sing for an hour. What you do is you take one step at a time. Like, you know, it's like running a marathon. You take the first step and then you take the second step. You take the third and the fourth. And, and before you know it, you finish the first scene. Then you go on to the second scene. You do the same thing again. You can't think too far ahead because it, it's really daunting if you think about it like that. So I just, I just got an inquiry from a, one of the big opera houses in Italy asking if I would be interested in singing Aribert Raimond's Lear. It's uh, Shakespeare, you know, King Lear. And I was like... That's a very good idea. It's a very good idea. And so I started looking into it and asked my manager, and they said, well, we know two people who have done it, both of them said it's the hardest thing they'd ever done, and they would never do it again. And I thought to myself, that might be something for me. <laughs> so, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I might be doing that. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that answers the question. You're, you're specific. I mean, no, you're not. Are you seeking these things out, or they are coming to you because now you've established that part of the Rod Guilfrey brand is, is that you're not risk averse? I think it's more the latter. I'm not really seeking these things out. Uh, I mean, I'm in contact with composers and I'm suggesting ideas for, for new pieces like this thing I just did with Renee in, at Tanglewood this summer, The Brightness of Light, is uh, composed by uh, Kevin Putz. And it's a fantastic piece. He, wrote, he also wrote Silent Night, which he won a Pulitzer Prize for, which is done like at Christmas time, around this time of year, like all over the place now. It's extremely popular. And uh, this thing that he wrote for me and Renee is a dialogue between Georgia O'Keeffe and her husband, Alfred Stieglitz. And it's really beautiful. It's 45 minutes long. We have projections of uh, some photographs of the two of them, but a lot of uh, O'Keeffe's 
artwork is projected above the stage. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece. And so I, and, and I said, you know, hey, Kevin, you want to write something for me? And so he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. So, of course, I'm having dialogues like that with composers all the time, particularly ones that I like. I'm not saying I only do modern music, you know. I, I, I just sort of fell into it. But, I mean, is there, is there some vaguely sketched out master plan in your head about what you've accomplished up until now, what you want to accomplish in the rest of your career, challenges that you want to set before yourself, or you're just open to opportunities as they arise? Tina knows I'm not a big planner. <laughs> I'm just sort of, I, honestly, I, I, I know... I want to invite Tina on the stage because we're getting really good color commentary. Oh, I know. <laughs> we'll get some good commentary from my yeah. wife, Tina, here. It's like closed captioning. <laughs> I think I've got I think I've got a few good years left in me and so I'm going to take every opportunity that feels right and make the most of it. I mean there are a lot of traditional roles that I'd love to do that I'm looking for the right place and time to do. Like Name those? Well, like Germont and like Scarpia, I'd love to do both of those. And um, so far, you know, my career has taken me away from the standard repertoire, so People don't see me in that. They say, "What can we? How do we know you can sing that? We don't hear anything in your repertoire to compare it to." You know, I did. I did uh, Rheingold Wotan two years ago in Japan, which was really fantastic. I really enjoyed that. That felt really good. So, you know, I'm I'm working on getting back into more of the standard stuff too. When you say only a few good years in you, what what are you basing that on? On the longevity of baritones in my in my lifetime, I seem, you know, I mean, I just turned sixty, and general shock. Four grandchildren, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> That's where we stand right now. Four grandkids. So I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to promise myself too much. I think I've got ten years of ten good years, and then we'll see what happens after that. You know. There are some singers that we all know who think that they're done and they just keep going and, you know, very successfully. So we'll see how long I can string that out. But all, all of which is to say that, you, you, I mean, you still find, I mean, is it as enjoyable to you? Is it as interesting to you as it once was? Is it? I, I think I'm having more fun performing now than I ever have. And part of that is because I put a huge amount of pressure on myself in the, in the early part of my career. That caused me a great deal of anxiety at times, which was not good for me or for my performances. And now I've... Or I've, for Tina. <laughs> or for Tina. Oh, my God. <laughs> Definitely not for Tina. So I feel like I've come to a place now where I know myself so much better. I know my voice so much better. I think that my technique is better than it's ever been in my entire career. Now, I have to say part of that is because I teach at USC. And I've been there for 10 years, and I've had to teach other people how to do what I do, and in the process, figure out how I do what I do, and then try to communicate that to people who don't know how to do what I do. And that's very challenging. A, being a great singer and being a great teacher are two completely different worlds. You can have, you can have the most beautiful voice and the greatest technique and not be able to teach your way out of a paper bag. And so... Uh, the claim there is that the process of teaching has taught you a lot about your own practice, which is... Yeah. Yeah, it's taught me a lot about me. It's taught me a lot about, about my technique, about my voice, about... Um, because I've done a lot of different kinds of music. I'll do, you know, the, the, the stand-up regular 
classical opera roles, and then I've done a lot of modern music, and I do musical theater, and I do a, I do cabaret, and I do some jazz, and they all are different uses of the voice, as Renee knows very well. You know, as an, an example of another person who started out as a classical artist who uses their voice in a myriad of ways. And I've sort of had to figure out how I do that. It's all been by instinct. I go, you know, I want to make this sound and I don't want to make that sound for this particular thing. And now I've sort of got it codified. I'm starting to understand technically what it is that I'm doing. So that's made it easier for me to teach like musical theater students who don't, don't want to sound like classical singers. All, all that to say that I've, it's sort of been a, a process of self-discovery teaching at USC. Although it's really, really hard to be teaching full-time and singing full-time. It's like, you know, it's crazy sometimes. So given, given the, your assessment of whatever mistakes you made and whatever anxieties that you felt, is that, is that part of your um, teaching methodology for the kids and also acknowledging that the world, and especially the world of opera, has changed um, so much in the last 40 years? Is that part of the lesson plan? My experience in, in yeah, I mean, like dealing with anxiety? And, and, just, and just sort of, I mean, obviously these kids are also asking, they're looking to you for career advice, right? You've yeah. been through the fire, and so they right. want some sense of what that process is like, and they want shorthand, right, about how to not fall into the obvious pitfalls. Sure. You know, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. There's some who feel very secure about their performing and they know exactly what they want to do. I have a, a, a mezzo-soprano from Iceland who is just such a fantastic singer and she knows what she wants to do. She wants to do classical, only she likes certain repertoire, she doesn't like other repertoire. She's pretty easy to steer because she's, she's already limited her own choices. And there are other people, some a uh, couple baritones I have who would love to do musical theater and love to do opera and love to do cabaret. They'd love to be actors. They want to be voice actors. They want to, you know, write books. They want to do all of this. And so I'm like, okay, you know, you can you can do whatever you want. Um, you risk you risk being a jack of all trades and a master of none, which is, well, I might fall into that sort of Swiss Army knife uh, uh, category. So I do have specific advice for them, and also. Uh, because I've come to understand the demands of performing, and I've come to understand this thing we're now calling music performance anxiety, which is now being recognized as its own, its own, um, uh, what do I want to say? Pathology? So its own psychology. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's actually being, uh, it's not yet included in the DSM. This is the physician's desk reference. No, I'm being serious but it will be soon because they've already made some annotations to say it's not like other social phobias. It's very specific to music performance. It's not even like sports performance anxiety. So I've come to understand a lot about that and that's really, really fascinating. There's so much that can be done to uh, help people who experience it and to prevent it unless they can't prevent it. Then some people just might drop out, you know, but there's hope. So did you go through a period in which this was acute and somehow you found some method to... I didn't think it was cute at all. <laughs> no, I seriously, I had, I've had some really scary experiences with it that have, that have uh, been very painful psychologically to go through. And uh, I just kept going. I seem to be kind of persistent. I mean, I'm kind of stubborn in that way. I just kept going and figured it out and, and got better and better and 
it's it's I learned a lot in the process. Did it ever happen mid-performance, or was it once you went out on stage, you just went on some sort of autopilot and? I wish. <laughs> I wish that it were just autopilot. No, it happened mid-performance before. Yeah, it, yeah. And so, how does that manifest mid-performance? How does it manifest? Manifest with exactly what it, what you do not want to happen to your voice. First of all, your voice gets dry. Your vocal cords get dry, at least in my case, which means you can't phonate, and they stick together. And every time you take a breath, it dries out your throat more because you're not producing enough saliva, you know, to keep it to keep it moist. Then all of the symptoms of like fight and fight or flight syndrome, where you've got accelerated heartbeat, increased respiration, sweating, tingling of the hands, lightheadedness, desire to die on the spot. But you know, you get through it. All of this somehow, the audience is not made aware of any moment of it. You, you covered it somehow. Usually it's not as bad as you think it is. It feels like death, but the audience typically doesn't notice anything's wrong. And so a lot of it is self-generated anxiety that doesn't need to be there. It's like having a panic attack, you know, where anyone standing around could say, there's nothing to be afraid of, calm down, everything's fine. But you can't convince that person having a panic attack that there's not something terribly wrong. It's similar to that. Okay, so let's, let's turn back the clock to 1986. What were the circumstances that led you to being on stage on the opening night of the Los Angeles Opera? Well, Peter Hemmings was in charge here, and he was uh, one of the most wonderful men I ever, ever met. He was very supportive, and Placido was also very supportive of my career. And, you know, that inaugural season, they, it was really just local singers in the small roles. And I auditioned like everybody else, and they liked me, and they said, we'd like to have you do the, the Herald and Otello, and we'd like to have you do Yamadorian Butterfly, and we'd like to have you do the second Nazarene and Salome. So I was in all three of those first three productions. And to Peter Hemming's credit, we had just moved to, to Germany. I was starting my career in Europe, and he said, we'll bring you back. Or maybe it was the year after that that we went. But we went to Europe, and, he, and, and Peter kept bringing us back every season. He said, I'll bring you back once every season. And so I had a foothold in the United States. And after, we, after seven years in Europe, we finally came back. You were in a FEST contract? I was it? in FEST contract in, in Frankfurt for two years and then five years in Zurich. And uh, when we came back... Everybody knew who I was here because I'd been singing at the LA Opera. No other place, just here. But American reviewers came and, you know, important people from other opera houses. So I had a way back in. I, I mean, I've had friends who go to Europe and then they get forgotten about by the American uh, people who do the, do the casting and by the artistic directors, by the press. And they come back as a complete unknown and their career falls apart, even though they were doing well in Europe. So we were really lucky in that respect. So how did that process go? You would you would sit down with Peter once a year and determine when you were available and when you might get a release and what kind of uh, roles you wanted to take on in the following years? Yeah, I mean, he sort of steered that ship. He would say, you know, I'd, we'd like you to do uh, Papageno and the Magic Flute or Figaro and the Marriage of Figaro, and he would tell me the time, and then I would meet with the the uh, you know my boss in either in Frankfurt or Zurich and say is there any way I can get out to do this and sometimes it was no but they usually tried to help out and find a way to let me out to let me come do it. So the entire time your intention was to do all the wonderful things that a fest contract does for you, but you always wanted to come back to California. 
That was, that was the, the idea was we were going to go to Germany for two years and then come back because it would only take two years to establish my career in Europe. And things didn't work out quite that way. And so we were in Frankfurt for two years and then I was offered the job in Zurich. Much more pay, much nicer place. Uh, you know, we could afford to have a nice apartment. And, and Tina said, okay, we'll stay on a bit longer. And that first two-year, three-year three contract became five years and then Finally got to the place where I was, I was, we were living in Zurich. I was traveling all over the world. I wouldn't even come back here to do performances and leave my wife and kids back, you know, in a foreign country. We're like, something's wrong with this picture. And by that time, uh, like many successful singers, you can live wherever you want, basically. You know, the company will pay for your flights to come in from wherever you are. So there was no reason not to live here anymore. So was there a moment or a project where you felt like, this is real, I've made it, I've achieved a certain level of success, I have done what I wanted to do in the first phase of my career, or? Now you have to remember that I haven't been that planned. You yeah. know, I, I have not had like a, my five-year plan, 10-year plan, whatever. But one of the greatest experiences of my whole life was doing Billy Budd here. And, and people ask me, what's your favorite role, if you have a favorite role? And I would have to hearken back to Billy Budd and still say that that was my favorite role. Just because it felt, it just felt so right. And I loved the production, and I, I loved being in that role. I loved the music. I loved playing that part. I felt like I was a really good, a good casting choice for the part. When I sang it here in 2000, it was the last time I sang it. My manager at the time said, you got to give up Billy Budd now. You're getting too old for Billy Budd. you got to go on to more dramatic repertoire. And so I did. So I took his advice. I never sang it again. It was a really convincing imitation of his manager. So that was... <laughs> he's also a natural mimic. I mean, I think the, the, uh, the, the beautiful thing about those performances, too, is that because it was the kind of end cap on Peter's time here, and because it was one of his favorite operas... And because you guys had been on this kind of 14-year journey, artistic journey together, there was something, I think, very... It, was, it, felt, it felt very meaningful. It felt like the end of an era in, in, in some ways. But, I mean, that was... I mean, you were very well established by, by 2000, but that was the, maybe the end of, of one phase? Yeah, or? Total, I, knew that it was, I knew that it was his dream to do Billy Budd here, and he decided that would be his final production of his time in Los Angeles before they moved back to England. And I, you know, I was so honored to be the one portraying that role. I'd done it in a lot of different parts of the world, but to do it here, you know, to bring it home to my home theater, I've always felt like this is my home, my home theater. And to do it here was just so deeply gratifying. And I'm so happy I got to do that. So what were some other highlights in that, in that next phase, post-bud, pre-crossing? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big chunk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Messiana, I mean, the Saint-Francois. Oh, I mean, the Saint-Francois. That was another one of these things. So this St. Francis of Assisi by Messiaen uh, I did in Amsterdam. I can't even remember what year that was, but it was quite a few years ago. The thing is m massive. It's like five and a half hours. It's almost as long as Meistersinger, you know. It's crazy. And, and the title role, St. Francis, never leaves the stage for the most part. There's like one scene where he's not there. It's really, really, really demanding. Um, yeah, that was... He has a gin and tonic in the back of the stage, though, so he's... <laughs> I actually had beer. Uh, on the intermissions, I started drinking a little bit of beer, you know, which was very, very good. And my ENT told me it would be great for me, so I was like... 
Doctor's orders. Doctor's orders. Uh, that was a really fantastic experience, and that that production was uh, the recording of it was nominated for a Grammy. Didn't win, but it was nominated at least. One of my other really uh, wonderful experiences was doing Don Giovanni uh, in a production with uh, John Elliott Gardner, and we started it in in um, Germany. We took it to Portugal. We took it all. Oh no, Italy. We went all over the place. Oh, Parma. We were in Parma, Italy. That's where we started it, and and we ended up finally in London, having done maybe I don't know thirty five performances. Maybe you know people don't do that much anymore, except for Light in the Piazza. They're going everywhere. Um, but that was fantastic, and singing in the Concertgebouw in, in Amsterdam, in sort of a semi-staged version of it, but it was really fantastic, and you can still see that on YouTube. If you look it up, you can find that performance on YouTube. That was a real highlight. It was one of those very few times that you have in your career where you feel it's like what they call a Zen moment. You know, you feel this flow, and you feel like you just go with it, and you think everything works, and you, and you, don't, you have no... You have no hesitation, and you you take risks, and they pay off, and and it was just one of those experiences that was really fantastic. Again, be because you've uh, been with us for so long, and you've had such an incredible span of a career, do you have any sort of general thoughts and reflections on the state of the art form and the changes that you've seen wrought upon it over the last uh, couple of decades? You know, I think we've been talking for years and years about the, the aging audience for operas, you know, that the, there are not enough young people that go to operas. But I've seen a real trend recently, and your off-grand series has been really important in this, and that is to do works that are really engaging, edgy, unexpected, modern composers, different productions that are really attractive to a younger crowd. And um, so I think this is a big trend now. You know, I, I know Beth Morrison, who has the Beth Morrison projects, and she's like this go-getter woman who has who's who's um, puts into production seven or eight, maybe more than that, operas every year, new operas, and she's got her own little team of uh, like directors and and things, and um, they're really showing the way I think for for where opera is headed. And, um, you know, Yuval Sharon here in, in L.A. with, with his, um, what's it called? The Industry. The Industry, yeah, The Industry. Doing really amazing cutting-edge things, really unexpected, that still technically are opera. I'm feeling very, uh, very good, very hopeful about where opera's going. So some people, some people hear that and feel anxiety about, you know, a lot of the things that drew us into the opera company in the first place were, was the canon. And so I think that sometimes there's an idea that, that all of that activity um, can somehow be uh, a distraction from or, or can take away from our responsibility to be able to do that incredible Giovanni with Johnny Lee Gardner you just described. I mean, is there any sense that one is kind of eating the lunch of the other or? No, I don't think so. I think... Or what can we learn on the main stage from the kind of excitement that is felt in those non-traditional spaces? From my experience, we are learning from those non-traditional things, and those things are being brought onto the main stage. But I don't think I don't think we're looking at the same demographic for one thing. So I don't. I, it seems to me that these cutting-edge things are are bringing in a different demographic, and uh, should not necessarily impact the the attendance at the more traditional productions. That's what I'm hoping. I I you would know better than I do if that's actually happening. 
Yeah, I mean, 50% of the audience for all of those off-grand pieces are totally new to the company, which is fantastic. And it also means that it's not just a self-selecting group of people who are just coming on a, in a block to everything that's modern. You know, whether someone who is attracted to the loser is going to necessarily come to Norma, I mean, that seems to strain my imagination. But part of the project is you're just trying to expand the number of people who are engaged with the company and engaged with the art form, because I don't know whether a conversion piece for an audience member is going to be Gazeichnitin, or it's going to be The Loser, or it's going to be a Saturday Mornings at the Opera. There's, you know, I think the project of the LA Opera is to try to find as many different entry points um, for audience members as possible, and then you know try to meet people where they are. Uh, it's certainly happening in New York, and it's certainly happening in London. And I, I mean, I think this is fantastic. I think, um, you know, there's there's some sense sometimes that culture is a zero sum game, and I think that a really healthy ecosystem in which people have lots of different opportunities to experience the art form is really good for for all of us. Um, I've often said that you know the the I mean it's revived in a certain way, but the the death of city opera in a way was a was a kind of blow to the overall industry that we have yet to recover from because it was this incredible kind of training ground for a whole class of American artists. So I'm all I'm all for this. I should note, and this will seem like a plug, although it's not, that um, as part of Eurydice, we're doing a countywide festival in support of uh, Matt and Sarah's work. But one of the projects in that festival is actually that the young artists are doing a Baroque um, piece, fully staged, called Mortorfea, the death of Orpheus, um, inside a nightclub called El Cid. And you know, it's a, it's another one of the way that the, the, these kind of ideas. I mean, we have an incredible cohort of young artists, and it's one of the ways in which all of these different cross currents of creativity. I think uh, not only benefit the company and the the group of artists, but I think really start to benefit the the audience. I was talking about uh, the cabaret show that I did uh, Friday, last Friday, I guess it was, in Pasadena. I was talking about how at one point in my career I was getting so busy and I was away from home so much that I could see it was really affecting my family in a very negative way. And I had to sort of reset my priorities and I decided in that moment that I would limit my time away to 183 days a year. That's half of the year. And that seems like a lot, but you know, for for uh, a successful uh, per stage performer, that's not much. You know, there's even danger of not being able to sustain a career if you're only out there doing it half of the year. And Tina did not want me to do it. She's pointing out right now. But at that point, I you know, I had to I had to turn down some things. I had to say, sorry, I'm I'm away too much. Sorry, I can't do it. And uh, I remember I was in, in France. Um, we were living back here already. And I was uh, singing, a, um, singing in the, the Pearl Fishers, singing uh, Zorga in the, in the Pearl Fishers. And I managed to get four days off for Thanksgiving. They had like a weekend, and I asked for two more days because, you know, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving in France. What's up with that? <laughs> And they know so much about food, and yet they... So I brought some bottles of wine back with me from France. I, I brought all my luggage, and I got home, and I could not bear to go back. And so I called them up, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm not coming back. And they're like, what? I said, I'm sorry, I'm not coming back. But my understudy was very, very good, very good French baritone, who was really, I heard him in rehearsals, he was really terrific. 
And I said, just use him. You'll be, he'll be fine. You'll be fine. And, it, and he turned out to have a huge success in that. And, I mean, he's a well-known opera singer now, so I don't know. Is that the thing that catapulted him to success? I don't know. Maybe it was. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm happy for him because I didn't want to do the job anymore. You know, you make decisions like that, and you just have to, you never know if it's the right or the wrong thing to do. All right, this is a good, pretty good story. So I was going, I went to Zurich. We had this after, after we moved back here, and, I, and, and Zurich, where we had I'd sung for five years, the intendant, Alexander Pereira, was very good at bringing me back. I came back almost every season to do something or other. And so he had me come back to do Don Giovanni. And, and I said, okay, when, he, when I discussed the dates with him, uh, the final date would be on um, April 2nd. I said, okay, it has to be April 2nd because April 4th is my daughter's birthday. I've missed her last two birthdays, and I promised her for her next birthday that I would wake her up with a kiss in the morning. I promised her that. So I have to fly back on the 3rd so I can wake her up on the 4th. And he says, okay, no problem. April 2nd, last performance, April 2nd. I got to Zurich to start rehearsals, and he says, Rodney, I'm so sorry. I've had to change the last performance. I said, no. He said, no, I, I'm putting it on April 3rd, but I can still get you home on April 4th. And I said, no, don't you remember I told you I promised my daughter I'd wake her up with a kiss in the morning. And he looked through his flight schedule. He said, well, I can get you to Los Angeles by 2.30 in the afternoon. And I said, I'm sorry. She should sleep in that day. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. I, I promised her, find someone else to sing that last performance. And he says, I can't find someone else to sing that last performance. I said, I'm standing my ground. You, I'm not going to do it if it's on, if it's on the third. And he said, and he started looking through his uh, flight schedule. He said, oh, if you only lived in New York, I could get to New York, to New York by 8 o'clock in the morning. I could fly you to Paris, and from Paris you could take the Concorde to JFK, and you could be there by 8 o'clock in the morning. And I said, but we don't live in New York. We live in California. <laughs> and he had suddenly this light bulb went on, and he said, would your daughter like to have her birthday in New York City? I said, what are you proposing? He says, I will fly your wife and your daughter to New York City, and I'll fly you there on the Concorde. You'll be there by 8 a.m., and you can wake her up. And I was like, let me ask my daughter. You know? So I asked my daughter, Erica, would you like to have your birthday in New York City? She's like, yeah. <laughs> so we did it, and it worked. That's such a lovely story. I actually want to stop there. Uh, <clears throat> so I want to thank all of you for coming tonight. Thank you so much for your support. For thank the you, everybody. I want to thank Rod for 34 years of extraordinary performances. Thank you. Uh, this Eurydice has been a long time in the making. And of course, it's the, it's the culminating event of Matt's um, residency uh, with us. And so all of us in the house are really, really excited. Uh, I agree with Rod. I think the, the piece is so unbelievably moving, and I can't wait to share it with you. So thank you all so much. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.